We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. How old does something have to be for it to be old? <laughs> Roger said, however old I am. That's... How old does something have to be? You can't hear? Let's try it one more time. I'll keep going. Um, it's always tough on a mic test. Um, we getting a little, a little better over there? Keith Reeves, can you hear me in the back? Perfect. Okay, all right. So since you can hear, you better not fall asleep. I'm watching you now, Reeves. Uh, I'm glad you guys. I'm glad you guys are here tonight. When we talk about history, one of the things I think that is, as you get older, I think history becomes more interesting because you start to see that things aren't as old and it wasn't as long ago as you thought it was at one point. This week, um, one of my kids is, was having to do a chapter summary and they are reading the, the Charles Dickens book, A Christmas Carol. Um, so he's been, he, he's been assigned this book and I said, uh, how are you enjoying, <laughs> I already know the answer to this question, but I how are you enjoying A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? He said, I hate it. And I said, okay. I said, well, I appreciate your honesty. What, what is the, what's the drawback? And he said, uh, he said, it's so old. And I said, yeah, it is old. He said, it was written in 1865. I said, that, that is old. He said, and they don't even use the right words for anything. He said, I was trying to read it because this is the temptation now. He had to do a chapter summary. So he is fighting the temptation not just to Google chapter summary, right? Because you can just Google chapter summary for the first chapter of A Christmas Carol. So he said, I was really trying to read it, but I still had to use Google because I had to figure out what the word was that they were trying to say because I didn't, under, I, I didn't understand it. He said, thank God I, I saw the movie. And I was like, you saw the movie? I was like, when did you see A Christmas Carol? I mean, that's a old, I mean, I mean, I don't know that, I don't even think they had TV in 1865 and it looked like it was made in 1865. Y'all know the movie I'm talking, I'm talking about. I said, you saw A Christmas Carol? And he said, uh, yeah, that cartoon, and I didn't even know there was a car, a cartoon of the of 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 the of the Christmas Carol. So we're having this discussion. So I'm, you know, as a parent, sometimes you have to judge your own level of hypocrisy. You know, because I'm actually thinking about would I like to read a Christmas Carol? Like, would that be top on my reading list? In case you're wondering, the answer is no. I don't. I read a lot, but that wouldn't be on on my list. But I'm trying to give him the whole speech. That's a literary classic. You need to challenge yourself. You don't always need to. Sometimes we need to read things that's harder than what we would you know, normally read. And if you just can keep reading it, I think you'll start understanding it. And I'm getting, do y'all know, most of you in here, do you know what I'm saying when I say the 13-year-old look? The look that a 13-year-old gives you like you have lobsters crawling out of your eye sockets? So, Look, and I'm realizing, okay, I'm not really getting anywhere with this, but I got to thinking about it. 1865, that sounds like such a long time ago, but I heard something this week and just thinking about time. If you made $5,000 a day from the time 
that Columbus sailed the ocean blue until now, not compounding interest, just made $5,000 a day from the time Columbus sailed the ocean blue up until now, you still would not be a billionaire. That's how much a billion dollars is. That if you made $5,000 a day from the time that Columbus set sail, not with compounding interest, you just $5,000 every day, you still would not be a billionaire. And I got to thinking about it seems like it is so long ago that some of these things happen, but if, if history serves like anything that we are realizing how things happen now, time passes so fast. Like, it, it's, um, it's unbelievable. How many of you are scrapbook, like, you, you, do I have any scrapbookers in here? It doesn't have to be, I mean, it may be digital, but are you a, 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 a all right, so this, Never mind, I'll change the illustration. I was hoping for like two people that did that. I thought this was going to be really good. I'm going to use it anyway. If it doesn't resonate, that's fine. My mother my mother does it, but she does it digitally. So she has, has a morning that she does digital scrapbooking. So she takes pictures and she puts them into albums. So she may make a whole scrapbook about... Halloween over the years, you know, so we'll have all my, my kids from every Halloween with different different pictures that they have. So she creates these little books and saves them on the, and makes these little digital books out of them. Well, when she makes them, she's proud of them and they're good. She does a good job, but she immediately takes the scrapbook and then she forwards it to us on a link. And so you open up the link, like it's a text link, you open it up and then you can look through her digital scrapbook. I can't do it. I can't like, and, and I don't, this may make me a softy. I can't look through it. I finally had to tell my mom, she'll take, did you look at the pictures? And I had to tell her no. And she's, you know, I know what she's thinking. You're not that busy. You could, you know, you could look through my scrapbook. And I finally had to tell her, I was like, I have to prepare myself for that. I can't just on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock open up pictures and start looking over the years because it gets, it gets in my, that thing in your throat where you start realizing how fast time has passed and like pictures of my daughter when she's one. I can't do it. Like I cannot physically or emotionally take that on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just too much at one time. So I just have to tell her, I have to get somewhere and kind of prepare myself for that. And I'm realizing every moment how quickly time passes, but you also realize how as time passes that things have a way of just repeating themselves, that history repeats itself, that events re seem to often repeat themselves, philosophies repeat themselves. So as we study back through history, I think it's a lot like as we study the Bible together on Sunday, it is strange how applicable it all is because you recognize that when Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun, there really isn't. There's no philosophy that's new. It's just the reinventing of an old idea. But what we're seeing now is some of the philosophies, especially when we talk about the 19th and 20th centuries, we are now seeing these ugly grandchildren of some of these philosophies and how they're espoused now. So as we jump into talking about the 19th century specifically, there's a couple of um, philosophers, I wrote their names in that very top paragraph, guys by the name of Kant and Schleiermacher, who concluded that if God exists, he is only the product of our experience and experience trumps revealed truth. Let me unpack that for you for just a minute. 
if God exists, we're going to talk about Nietzsche in just a little while, but their philosophy was that if God exists, all God is is a product of your experience or your imagination. So what the, you would then conclude from that is that God could be whatever anybody wanted him to be based on their own individual experiences. Now, we know that today we are seeing the ugly grandchildren of this philosophy as it is ridden up, as it is risen up. Because what has taken place now is, is we see where people talk about faith as nothing more than a feeling. People will say, well, you have faith in Jesus, that's great. I have faith in whatever they have faith in. It is incredibly disturbing yet fascinating to see some of the the interviews, and you can look on YouTube and see these, when they go to, to public places and ask people about their philosophies, ask them about what they believe about God and what they believe uh, about who God is and about their relationship to God. And what we often see now is what the theologians call pantheism, that people believe that God is everything and everything is God. I, I watched recently an interview with a young lady, looked to be college age, and they asked her this question, do you believe in God? And she said, oh yeah. Now, if you're a conservative Christian, you think immediately when you hear that answer, that's a fantastic answer, she believes in God. But if you don't ask the follow-up question, then the initial question doesn't matter because the follow-up question was this. Now, I want you to just listen to the flaw in the question, not just the answer. I'm going to give you the answer, but I want you to listen to the flaw in the question. The interviewer asked this young lady, who is God to you? Who is God to you? So what he has already implied with the question is that God is subjective, meaning that I am going to now tell you who I think God is by my own experience. And this is what she says. She says, I feel God. Now, many of you in here would say, well, I don't know that that's wrong. I, I feel the presence of God or the conviction of God. She said, I feel God so I know he's there. And he, so they asked, they said, when you say you feel God, who is God? And this is what she said. She said, well, God is everything. And he said, what do you mean God is everything? And she said, well, God is everything and God is everywhere. Well, we would agree that uh, biblically that God is omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere at once. But we would not agree that God is everything. When she said God is everything, she is saying that she experiences God because God is in everything and God is everything. So the interviewer followed up on the question and asked this, well, if God is everything, then give me, give me an example. And so the young lady happens to be smoking a cigarette at the moment the interview's going on. And he, they ask the question, They say, and, and he, she said, so the interviewer follows up and said, well, if God is everything, what about that cigarette? And she smiled and she said, huh, yeah, I guess I'm smoking God. Because God is everything and God 
is everywhere and God is subjective to my experience and my feelings determine what God is. So God can be to me what I desire God to be and God can be to you what you desire God to be. And if you don't believe that we're living in that world, then Think about how in every single debate that we hear about world religion that you are no longer allowed to make an absolute statement. An absolute statement about sin, about righteousness, about good, about evil, about wrong, about right, about God, about who he is definitively. And if you try to define him as the biblical God, then what we see is this philosophy that caught on all the way back in the 19th century and that has grown. Now we live in a world where there's no objective knowledge of God, that there's no way to definitively know about that. We're going to talk about next week as we start talking about the solas, we're going to begin with sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. But in talking about scripture alone, what is our objective? objective for being able to have a knowledge of God. But even in the midst of this dark and satanic philosophy that grew up during the 19th century, the gospel continued to move forward. Um, people like William Carey, Henry Martin, Robert Moffat, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor took the Great Commission seriously and international missions began to spread and it began to spread rapidly throughout the world. Um, it was amazing that William Carey, you know, um, obviously, we have a college down the road that's named for William Carey. Some people have called William Carey. He's known as the father of modern missions. And he wanted, to take, he wanted to take the gospel abroad. But he was told by his, the home church society where he lived that when God got ready to evangelize the heathen, that God would do it himself. William Carey was revolutionary in saying, no, we are the instruments that God will use to carry the gospel. So in the midst of a world philosophy that seems to be incredibly satanic, demonic, we also have a rising up of modern missions taking on a role that it had never taken before in church history. And all of the while, there is a revival that is brewing in certain places, and it's fueled by the preaching of Scripture. And one of the great lessons we have, and I, this has come up in every century, over 20 centuries, over and over and over again, every time there's been revival, every time there are two elements, two elements every time. Number one, the exposition of Scripture, every time. The teaching of Scripture, and number two, prayer. There's never a revival where those two things aren't, aren't, element, aren't elements. And one of the greatest examples of that is men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Um, I am, just to kind of lay my cards on the table, I believe that Spurgeon is the greatest, the, the greatest preacher that ever walked the earth in the last 2,000 years besides Jesus Christ himself. Um, I, I, in... In world history, if you read his sermons, the volume of which the work that he did, um, it, it has always been to me one of the most motivating, powerful examples of what biblical preaching ought to look like. This is a man that could find the gospel in the commas and the dots of the eyes. He was... Uh, he made such an impact on my life and my ministry that my son's middle name is Haddon. And it is because of Charles Spurgeon. That's how indebted my life is to trying to understand what 
not that I would ever even scratch the surface, but I think we all have to have heroes and goals. And for my entire ministry, I've often thought, I think this is a, it's been a good exercise for me. When I write a sermon, one of the things I like to sometimes pretend or imagine is that if Spurgeon heard this sermon or read this sermon, would it meet muster? So it has been often, all, all the time in my life, it's always been, um, it, it's, it's, been not only meaningful, I have a, um, if you come in my office, I actually have a bobblehead of Spurgeon that's sitting on my desk uh, that, that is there. And it's a constant reminder when I look at that, that there were preachers in days of old that show us and pave the way that it's not about new and creative and inventive marketing strategies. It's about preaching the word. It was in the 1860s. It was in the 1960s. It is, it is now. I'll give you there's so many Spurgeon stories, but I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you my favorite. This is probably my favorite. Um, he, was, he was in a lecture hall one day, and he was preparing to preach. And as he was preparing to preach, this was before the days of microphones. I had to get Keith to tell me a minute ago whether he could hear in the corner because we were needing to up the volume. But Spurgeon had to preach in a way in which his voice would be projected where thousands could hear him without having a microphone. And so he would always go, whether or not he was at, whether or not he was at Metropolitan Tabernacle or visiting somewhere, and he would have what would be today considered a mic check, except for there was no mic. He had to get people to help him see if he was projecting too loud, if it was reaching the back of the room. So he would, what he began doing was, in trying to do those mic checks, is instead of just saying, check, 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 he would just quote scripture. And he would use the inflection of his voice to quote scripture so he could figure out how the cadence and the speed and the volume needed to be. And so one day as Spurgeon was preparing, he just continued to, sp to speak the verse over and over again where John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he would change sometimes. And so sometimes he would put the emphasis on the word and he would say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he would put the emphasis on lamb and he would take, put the emphasis on takes away and the sins of the world. And he would go over and over and over again, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as he is quoting the same scripture over and over again, just to try to figure out whether or not the acoustics were right in the room, he looked up and a man had come in early and was sitting in the top of the balcony and all he could hear was weeping. And the man at the top of the balcony had fallen on his knees and had given his life to Christ having heard nothing but the verse, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I can remember seeing that and it was one of the most freeing illustrations that ever came to my life. And here's why. My job's not to be cute. My job's not to tell stories. My job is to behold the Lamb. My job is to lift up Jesus. My job is to show people Jesus. And when people encounter Him, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit does in lives what only the Holy Spirit could do. So when we go and we look back at history and the people like Spurgeon, we see the power in that. We see the early part of the 20th century bring a, about a belief in the Western world that the triumph of Christianity was going to bring about a golden age of peace and prosperity that the entire human race was going to eventually basically evolve into a place where there was going to be nothing but prosperity over all of the world. Much of this, if you 
study end times events, post-millennialism is the word. It became very, very popular. But there was something that upset this belief. Can anybody think of events that happened during the 20th century that may have ripped out people's belief. You've heard of the roaring, you've heard of the roaring 20s, often during the 1920s. People believed that this golden age and people were just going to get richer and healthier and happier and that the world was going to become a utopian place that we were, because of industrialization and all that was happening, we were getting better and better and better and better. And then some events took place. Do you remember what some of those events were? World War I, the Depression, World War II crushed that belief. And people began to realize that if you were waiting on the world to evolve into a utopia, you were waiting, it was a losing ball game. And so that philosophy began to fall apart and in its place came about um, what was known as a rationalistic or rationalistic modernism um, that brought a full frontal assault on the trustworthiness of Scripture. Um, in other words, it became for the first time this real battle of quote-unquote science versus Scripture. And there became a, a, this assault that came on the faith brought about what, what was a battle for the Bible. This was still being fought in the 1980s. Um, we've had numerous conversations recently, I've had them with a lot of you in here, about issues in the Southern Baptist Convention. There are significant issues in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. There is no doubt about that. We've had bad decisions, bad affiliations, bad elections, um, bad political stances, um, it is significant, the mistakes that have been made, uh, especially over the recent decade in the Southern Baptist Convention. When I was just a child, not even old enough to know that this was taking place in the early 1980s, there became what was known as the Battle for the Bible. And because many of the seminaries had gone completely liberal, and because of liberal theology sunk in, there had to be a takeover and there had to be a decision. And there was a battle fought mostly over the doctrine of inerrancy. People like W.A. Criswell out of Dallas were staunch defenders of what would be known as this, this doctrine that would be worth dying for, the doctrine of inerrancy. It's also, by the way, the doctrine that Martin Luther stood it for the diet of worms and said, here I stand, I can do no other because I'm basing my life and my ministry and every one of these theses and objections on the Word of God. So my hope and my prayer is that as we look throughout history, that whether it's a rationalistic movement, whether it's a liberal movement, whether it's a secular movement, whether it's a progressive movement, that there is also an awakening that you realize that there's got to be a coming back to the inerrancy, the inspiration, the infallibility, the trustworthiness, the authoritative word, which is the Bible. Um, it's also interesting um, that it was not until this time. Now, this is going to shock some, some people just looking back at church history. But it was not until the early 20th century that Pentecostalism even arose. Now, what's strange about that is most people that are Pentecostal will tell you that that has been around, that, that they are the original church. But Pentecostalism actually arose as an offshoot of Methodism. And when 
Pentecostalism arose as an offshoot to Methodism. It became what was, what was then an aberrant brand of theology. And what is strange is, is that what we see today is it has become so mainstream. And one of the reasons that it has become mainstream is because of the charismatic movement that happened even in the 1970s. So what you see then is what once would have been completely aberrant theology became accepted as that. So when you hear about things like the if you look up and read about the Azusa Street Revival or you start hearing about um, denominations that were based on the speaking, um, the speaking in tongues and all of the word of faith movement that grew out of that, prosperity theology that grew out of that, the name it and claim it, um, the quote-unquote gifts of the Spirit, the apostolic movement, all of those things were born actually during out of the early, what we're talking about, 19th, early 20th century movements that took place. And so those, you say, I don't understand, Larry, what that would have to do with what you talked about with Kant and Schleiermacher and the philosophies. Let me help connect the dots. If a philosophy comes into the world and the world says that God is who you want him to be and that God is about your experience and your experience becomes the definition of God and that philosophy finds its way into the church, don't think for a moment that secular philosophies do not find their way into churches. That finds its way into the church. Now that that's found its way into the church, then I have to start looking for a way that I can quote unquote have an experience of God. So my experience begins to trump the reality of Scripture, which is why often I will ask the question when somebody says that the Lord led them to do something or I heard God speak. I'm not doubting you, but I want to know where in Scripture God led you to that. Because if not, then my experience, and you say, well, I'm not doubting you had an experience. I'm not doubting you had a feeling. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's not biblical. It's not from the Holy Spirit. And so when we start, I would actually compare modern Pentecostalism, modern charismatic theology, it's not a far different cry from what Roman Catholicism is. Now, a lot of people think, how in the world can you compare Charismatics and Roman Catholics? When all of the sudden you have any type of theology that trumps biblical authority with either papal or something from a priest being authoritative or someone's individual experience having more authority than the Word of God, then all of a sudden you have a, a recipe for a lack of ways in which that you judge the standard of something. When you how we judge whether or not something is true or false has to be based on an objective standard. And whether or not it's the experiential theology of the Word of Faith movement or whether or not it's Roman Catholic theology from papal succession or the same things that Luther dealt with during the Protestant Reformation, if it's not grounded in the Word, we end up with heresy. We end up with doctrinal issues. And then communism jumps up and wages a war against Christianity in the name of materialism and atheism. And though it failed, the church in the West was hit hard by the poison of modernism and secularism. And then its culmination 
in the theology of Nietzsche. If you've ever heard the phrase, God is dead, that was coined by Frederick Nietzsche. Philosophy of the 1960s. It was often shown in graffiti all over the place. God is dead. Nietzsche basically argued that there may have been a God, but if there was a God, that God set the world into motion and created the world, and then God just released the world onto its own, and that if God ever existed, that God no longer existed. So if God no longer existed, then God had died. Um, why would you have a culture, 1960s sexual revolution? Why do you ever wonder... Why since the 1960s there has been a growing desire to get rid of God in every public sphere? To deny God's existence? To move away from the doctrine of God? Why? What is the obsession? What is the, have, you, have you ever just really asked the question? Why is the idea of God so offensive to so many people? Is it because they're brilliant? No, it's because of what we're going to talk about this coming Sunday. Because if there's a God, you're accountable. If you're a God, if there is a God, then there is a judge. If there is a God, then there is a standard. If there is a God, then there are rules. And if there is a God, then you're not. And all of those things bring about a, a desire to get rid, to desperately try to get rid of him so that personal accountability can fly out the window. That's one of the reasons we see, um, certainly in the sexual revolution, you see it in the homosexual agenda, you see it um, in the desire to legitimize abortion. We've got to get rid of God because if we can get rid of God, we can get rid of any form of moral standard. One of my, <laughs> I just like this. Somebody had gone on a uh, graffiti, if you remember, and it's still, a, it's still a deal, but, you know, there was a time in the 80s and 90s where graffiti was just huge. You know, you didn't go over a bridge. You didn't go over an overpass. There was graffiti. It was going to be painted on every train car. And someone had written on the top of, of a bridge, they had written Nietzsche's quote, God is dead, Nietzsche. Somebody climbed that same bridge and the day after that they put Nietzsche's obituary in all of the papers, someone climbed up with a can of spray paint and wrote, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> I, I, I think there's some humor in that, but I think there's an incredible truth in that. That all of those that deny his existence and his power, and your accountability before him, one day you will not have the opportunity to stand before a holy and righteous and just and powerful God, and all you will ever do is look up to him and beg for another chance, but that chance will be gone. God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. And so we see over the course of history that coming up over and over again, so to, to stem the tide of unbelief, something came along in the 20th century that became known as fundamentalism. Now, 
when we say fundamentalism, that for many of you, it may have a, a it can sometimes have a negative connotation to it because fundamentalism and legalism often were synonymous. But the real desire of the fundamentalist was to get back to the fundamentals of the faith where we kind of understand there are movies like, um, I know none of you in here ever watch movies, so you probably, nobody in here probably knows what I'm talking about, but there was a movie with Kevin Bacon called Footloose. Anybody, you know what I'm talking, remember Footloose? Everybody cut, right? Kick off your Sunday shoes. And the whole premise of the movie was that there was this staunch preacher who wouldn't allow dancing in the town, right? Can't have a dance. And so it was this rebel with a cause kind of movie where we were gonna we were gonna break through these fundamentalist ideas. So most people, when they think of fundamentalists, they think about like the, the a situation like in the movie Footloose. But it became a dominant force in American life because it was trying to fight against the progressivism, the secularism, the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And so we had mass evangelistic campaigns um, held by people like Billy Sunday, eventually by Billy Graham. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had tremendous influence in the church all the way back to biblical, uh, back in, to biblical theology. Um, years ago, I'll tell you a D. Martin Lloyd-Jones story. I love this. Um, I know you guys think I take a long time to preach through books. I, 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 I'm guilty as charged. Took a 54 sermons to get through Romans. It took me over two years to get through Luke. Um, it takes me a long time. When I decided to preach through Ephesians years ago, I decided I was going to order um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was actually my preaching professor in college. He was his hero. Uh, he loved D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you don't know about Lloyd-Jones, he'd be a great person to research. He was a medical doctor, surrendered to the ministry later in life, and approached studying scripture much like he approached uh, medicine. Meticulous study. So I, I decided to preach through Ephesians, so I decided to order an old, uh, an old group of commentaries that Lloyd-Jones had written on Ephesians. Just the book of Ephesians. Just Ephesians. I ordered it, and I noticed when I ordered it, I thought, well, that's kind of, it was expensive. Like for a commentary, I thought, well, that's expensive. And I didn't read the fine print. It came in nine volumes. Just the book of Ephesians. It's on my shelf, and just his work on Ephesians, just width-wise, It's that long. And I opened up the boxes and I started looking through them and I'm, I'm still thinking, I'm going, there, there's no way. I mean, we're talking about preaching, preaching from words, like not verses, words and phrases. And so I'm, I'm beginning to read this and, and, I, and it showed me something. I wasn't prepared yet when I first opened up these commentaries, but he taught me something without ever cracking the first of them. And here's what it taught me. And I've seen this over and over again in my individual life, and you've seen it too. I've seen it preaching, I've seen it studying the Bible, I've seen it teaching. You will never mind the depths of Scripture. You will never get everything there is. Have you ever noticed that you read through a book of the Bible? I'm actually right now, in my personal time, I'm reading through the Gospel of John. And I'm like, I know I've read, some, I've, I've read John 
maybe hundreds of times. And yet I'm reading it right now and I'm seeing things I'm, I've never, never thought about before. I've never seen this before. I don't, I don't know that this has jumped off the page at me like this. I'm convicted about things. And the reason is, is because the word really is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when I saw that Lloyd-Jones commentary, I realized in my life, I thought, Larry, it, it doesn't matter if you preach till you're 140 you're never going to mind the depths. You're never even going to, going to scratch the surface. And so I turned in my Bible. I mentioned it's Ephesians. One of my favorite verses of Scripture comes from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You know it, for it is by grace that you have been saved, this not of yourselves. So I went to that phrase, for it is by grace you have been saved. And I can remember just reading that phrase over and over again. For it is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved. And the Lord just caused me to smile. I can remember smiling and the Lord in his beautiful sense of humor and conviction just said, if I gave you 10 lifetimes, you think you could mind that phrase? For it is by grace you have been saved. And I realized that if you gave me 10,000 times 10,000 years, I'd never even get to the bottom of that phrase. For it is by grace you have been saved. And so these people that have gone before us have just taught us the beauty and the richness of being able to mine the depths of Scripture. And certainly Lloyd-Jones was a huge, huge part of that. The world, the church around the world began to flourish. South America, Asia, Africa, and the clash that even continues now in the Middle East with Islam continue to rage on. What we have seen throughout church history, and I will ask and beg your forgiveness, that over 10 weeks trying to teach 2,000 years, um, I've been asked this question before many times in my life um, about many things. But if I have ever bitten off more than I can chew, it was, it was probably this. But you've been patient and you've been gracious as we've tried to just give an overview, understand the importance and the beauty of, of history and God's sovereignty over that. But I think if we had to sum everything up, you see the last line that's written there on this, this page. What we see throughout church history is that Christ is with us to the end of the age and that he will build his church and his kingdom. God is not finished. I'm I'm, I tend to be probably not as much now in my life as I was at some times, but I can be a news junkie sometimes. I can go down rabbit holes. I can be a political junkie if I'm not careful. And sometimes as you're watching this, it's the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Everything's horrible. I mean, I turned on the news th this morning and flipped it over, and they're talking about the midterm elections. And, and I'm on a news station that I actually like, for the most part, watching this coverage. And I'm watching it, and I got tickled because I was actually thinking about teaching you guys tonight. And I'm watching the news, and I'm thinking, I think this lady really thinks that the eternity is going to hinge on this election. Now hear me out. Am I pro-voting? Yes. Should you vote conservatively? Yes. Do I believe that that makes a difference in the lives we lead? Yes. Do I think leadership is important? Yes. I'm, don't hear me saying I'm not anti-government. I'm not anti-involvement. But I am 
anti, believing that somehow the, the solutions that we are going to find from a eternal level are going to be found in a midterm or a presidential election. As we look out over the course of history, we see that God is sovereign. We see that God is in control. We see that in every step of history that he has been there. And I guess what's been so fascinating to me is that God sometimes is working larger in the times that seem awful that you don't even, couldn't even imagine that God would be doing something good in the midst of. And then all of a sudden you look up and you recognize God has been moving all along. I really believe that right now that God is doing some incredible, incredible work. I got a call. I got a call today. This is just, this is just an encouraging call to you as a church. Got a call from a young man, grew up at this church. He's right now, he went to Southwest Community College. He's at Mississippi State. He surrendered his life to ministry. And he called me today. He said, I left me a message. He said, I need to talk to you, Brother Larry. I was in a meeting when he called. He said, could you just call me? And so I called him back. And he said, uh, I just wanted you to know that I started the application process today. I'm, gonna, I'm applying with the International Mission Board to be a journeyman to go overseas. And then when I get back from two years, I want just to know that I just wanted you to know that my plan is I want to go to New Orleans Seminary and I'm going to produce uh, I'm going to pursue a degree in international church planning and I want to take and I want to dedicate my life to planting churches all around all around the world I'm going to be a missionary and I thought God you are moving in lives and in people in incredible ways and multiplying the gospel. And every now and then, church, I want you to get your minds out of the gutter. Quit being so pessimistic and quit being so negative and quit believing that politicians are going to determine your fate and quit believing that there's no hope and quit believing all of the negative press because Satan is stealing a lot of your joy. He's taking it from you and you've let him have it because some of you have bought into a lie that God is dead. And I'm here to tell you today, if there's one thing that the New Testament teaches, listen close. He is not here. He is risen. Jesus is alive and he is well and he is coming. He is the sovereign God of history. And so over the next few weeks, I'm looking forward to journeying with you through the five solas. For the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the importance of sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Join me in that journey as we start that next week. I'm so thankful you be here this week. I want to tell you, I want to tell you something. I, I want you to invite people every Sunday. There's not a Sunday that comes that I'm not incredibly pumped about. Um, uh, it, it's an amazing privilege to see what God is going to do. But this Sunday, this Sunday, you pray for me, you pray for our church, and you pray for somebody that's lost. Because if you've been reading through 2 Thessalonians, this particular week, as we get to verses 6 through 10, it is on the wrath of God and the reality of hell. I, if someone doesn't know Jesus, I would love for them to be here this coming Sunday. It is the most difficult messages that I ever preach when the subject of hell comes up. Not because I ever desire to avoid a biblical subject, but if you can preach on hell without 
it tearing your soul apart, then you have no business in a pulpit. And so I'm really excited about what God can do with this text, what he will do with this text. The word of God does not return void. But if you have people in your life um, that you would like to come or invite, or if you want to ask them to at least watch on Facebook or to tune in, um, I don't, I, it is just going to be a, a real time for us to focus on the eternal realities um, that everybody will face. And I'll go ahead and give you a preview. Um, you, don't, you still have to come. But people are either going to go to one or two places, and that's it. It's either heaven or it's hell. And we want to be a place that declares both the grace of God and the wrath of God. Because if people want to be saved, they, only, they not only need to know what they're going to be saved to, but they've got to, be know, they've got to know what they're being saved from. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're the God of history. I thank you that you're sovereign. I thank you that you're king. I thank you that you're in control. I thank you that you're risen and that you're alive. I thank you, God, that you're coming again. I thank you, Lord, that you're a God that in your wrath you remembered mercy. I thank you, God, that even though there's a real place called hell, God, that I'm not going. I thank you, God, that nobody listening to me right now has to go. And so, Lord, we look forward to the future because we know that our future is secure in you. Our hope is in you, Jesus, the solid rock upon which we stand and on no other. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.